How are you? Good. All right. How do Sunday school classes go? All right. Three of you liked it? Good. All right. So uh, two things. Let's listen to Pastor Maldi. And, and uh, one, if you're a guest here today, before we ask you to do something, let me just say welcome. I'm just glad you're here. I know Maldi means that. And uh, so I thought I would recap that. We're glad you're here. If you're starting off a new year here, we're glad you're with us. Um, two things I wanted before we get to the message uh, that I wanted to do. And we had intended to do this in December and it didn't work out. And so uh, we've been working through, in 2023, we worked through kind of what it means to belong to a church. What does it mean to be a member of a church? And being a member isn't just attending or you show up and kind of self-identify that you belong, but rather we have a relationship where we've said, okay, I belong to you, you belong to me, we understand what that means, right? And so we started with some of the founding people that started Generations Church about eight years ago. Um, in fact, let me think really fast. Three days from now will be our eighth anniversary. Yeah, so we're, this is eight years for, for Generations, so really cool. So about 50 of us got together and kind of defined what belonging to a church is, and, uh, and uh, probably 40, just over 40 of us ended up saying, yes, that's what we want to do. And so we move forward, and then in December, at one of our meetings, we invited, I think it's 26 more people who had gone through the process to become members. So I want to do this in, in kind of in two steps. So if you were kind of one of the original members in June, would you please stand up? Would you, just wherever you are, would you? I gave you guys fair notice, so it's not like you're surprised by this, right? So this is a group of people that helped us put together what it means to belong to Generations Church. I know not everybody could be here today. Wow, Reggie, that was fast. Sit back down. All right. And then we walked through a process, uh, and I think it was 26 more. So if you became a member as of December, would you stand up, please? All right. Yeah, and I know, I know there's family not here. Thank you, guys. Uh, I appreciate that. So there's about 68 people that formally call this church home. There's probably twice as many people than that that are here right now. But about 68 of us, I think is the number, just formally said, we're family. This is our church. This is where we belong. This is where we're committed. This is where we're going to do ministry. We're going to love one another, proclaim the gospel to one another, serve with one another, and belong to one another. And so that is those 68 people. And we will be opening up, and we'll just be inviting people uh, throughout this month or the next month or something like soon, uh, that if you haven't gone through that, if you'd like to know what that means, uh, we would like to invite you into that, okay? One more thing, at the end of December, or right around the middle of December, I said, hey, you know, the end of the year, Maybe you uh, wanted to give to something at the end of the year as people start thinking about taxes or you wanted to hear what we were doing with the preschool. And so we are up and running. This is, we've had the preschool open all last week. We have, I think, 51 students. Um, we're hiring another teacher this coming week because we, we need one more, but we've got uh, what we've been doing. And so we, we just said, hey, listen, we're starting from zero. And so if you, if you would desire a place to give at the end of the year, that we would use it towards that. And so I think about $13,500 extra came in from all of you in December. So I just wanted to say thank you and, and celebrate that. And so above our normal tithes and offerings, above doing that, as we made kind of an, an, an extra push into a new area, 
Uh, I just want to say thank you. You guys are generous, and you always help, and so I am grateful for that. All right. You can start at Ashley. Acts chapter 1, if you would please turn there with me. We're going to start a brand new book for the new year, and it is the book of Acts. If you need a Bible, there should be one on the chairs in front of you. I can even give you the page number. It's 909. Inland Empire area code. So it is page 909, all right, is the book of Acts. Now, at the end of the message, not at the end of service, but at the end of the message, I'm going to ask you, what is something you heard today that you want to apply to your life? That's what we call a takeaway. What is something you heard or learned today that you want to apply to your life here in the the next week or so, right? And so we encourage everybody, bring a, a notebook or a journal uh, we bring little, you know, kind of notebooks to, to take notes with. We can think through. So at the end of the message, we can ask ourselves, okay, what's something we want to apply to our lives? If you didn't bring that or if you need one, there should be a note card in the back of the chairs also. All right? Acts as a book, or formerly called the Acts of the Apostles, right? So it's really the beginning of the church. And so Acts forms a bridge, if you will, in the New Testament from the Gospels to Romans through Revelation, the rest of the New Testament, right? It, it forms a bridge in between those two by giving us context. It picks up where the four Gospels leave off with a resurrected, living Jesus. Some of the Gospels who speak about the ascension of Jesus, Jesus going back to heaven, we'll talk about that today. But it picks up right there with the resurrected Jesus giving his final words to the church, ascending back to heaven where he belongs to rule and reign as king today. And what we see is the first few decades of the church. It begins in Jerusalem where Jesus was. It trickles out to those related to Jerusalem and now to the ends of the earth. In kind of mostly Africa, Asia, Europe, it starts moving onto those continents or it starts developing in those continents. Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, all those, we see those cities come up and we see people go there and we understand why Paul was writing or why Peter or John was writing to them. We get a context for the whole New Testament. So it's a bridge between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, which is Romans through Revelation. Today I want to do two things. I want to do a little bit of an introduction to the book by giving you some key themes that are in the book. We'll catch those as they come up in the introduction, but I also want to talk about really the first 10 days of the Christian church. And so I want you to think about that. There are 10 days between Jesus' ascension, right? Jesus becomes human, flesh, lives a sinless life, dies a death in our place, is buried to cover our sins, resurrects on the third day, spends 40 days teaching this group called the church, the first church, Spends 40 days teaching them about the kingdom, and then ascends back to heaven. Job completed, back to heaven, where Jesus reigns and lives and is today. With one promise to be fulfilled, he will return here, reconcile this world, redeem this world, repair this world, where he will reign forever. Right? So it's, it's that first few decades is Acts Chapter 1 is going to talk about the first 10 days of the Christian church. So here's a main idea for you today. I don't have a lot of notes uh, today for you, but here is one. Preparing for the mission. Jesus gives his final words before ascending back to his throne. 
How the church responds to Jesus' words teaches us how we prepare for the mission that Christ has given us, or for the mission Christ gave us, right? What they're doing is they're hearing the job he's given them, they're preparing for that, and I'll explain why that is, but as they begin to prepare, it teaches us how do we prepare for the mission because we are a continuance of that mission. We're a part of a network of churches, church planting churches, multiplying churches. We're a part of a network called Acts 29. Acts, in case you're unfamiliar, has 28 chapters to it, right? Acts 29 means go be the next chapter, right? We carry on the work that began here. Make sense? We continue the mission of the church today here in our context. So, Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the first book, Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So our author, his name is Luke. Luke is a man who, well, first of all, he wrote the gospel that bears his name. So the gospel of Luke. He writes the book of Acts. He partners with Paul in ministry. We'll see him enter the story in Acts 16. You'll see this shift in the first 15 chapters. It'll say, they did this, they did that. And then just a few verses into Acts 16, you'll see, we went to here, right? And Luke joins the story. Now, he doesn't emphasize his point. He's not making the story about himself, but he joins the story. And so really, he is telling the history of the church since its inception at Jesus' ascension, right, since its beginning, and he focuses on, and the book is kind of split in half based on Peter in the first 12-ish chapters and Paul in the last chapters, last 15 or 16, whatever that is, 16 chapters. And so we see these two key leaders, but those two key leaders are not the hero of our story. See, the hero of our story is the living Jesus, right? And they emphasize their firsthand accounts of the living Jesus. Jesus is always the hero of the story. I'm not, you're not, Paul isn't, Peter isn't, the church isn't, right? Jesus is the hero of the story. We, as, in as much as we follow Jesus, get to reveal Jesus to the world. Theophilus is a person Yes, many of will tell you Theophilus, Theos, and Phileo, those two Greek words, God and love, it translate lover of God. But it's not supposed to mean just any lover of God. He's writing to a real person. Does this relate to you and I? Yes, of course. Should we be lovers of God? We should be. But that's just his name. His name is Theophilus. And Theophilus is, to the best of our understanding throughout church history, Theophilus was a wealthy, wealthy man. We'll call him a benefactor of Luke's. Luke is a doctor, an educated man, and Theophilus actually funds Luke investigating this Jesus that Theophilus has begun to hear about, and then picks up that story after investigating the story of Jesus by interviewing the apostles and the disciples that knew Jesus, that saw him live and die and resurrect again to life. And then Luke decides to continue that story, and he writes Acts, or kind of that first history of the church. Benefactors have always existed in the church. There were people, men and women, who were financially capable of helping the church move from here to there. And really, that's what Theophilus is. He's just an early benefactor of the church. He is a fan of Jesus and wants to understand him, so he funds some work to figure out, okay, 
what's true and false that I've heard about Jesus? And then he continues, as, as Luke then says, well, let's do the next thing too. Let's talk about the first few decades of the church. And, and Theophilus, to the best of our knowledge, funds that. And see, there are some of you who have been like that in your lives, where you have been a financial catalyst to ministry. You've been able to support ministry, missionaries, churches, end-of-year giving, things like we just did. There are people that their contribution sometimes is that. Not everybody can just get up, leave, and go somewhere for the sake of the gospel. God doesn't call everybody to do that. Some people are called to go and do this, and some people are called to embed themselves in a local... In fact, I'd say 99% of all Christians are called to embed themselves in a local church and do ministry in a local community for the rest of their lives. Some will do that in different ways. Could be pastoring, could be being a deacon, could be those that come in and, and clean, or those that help with Sunday school with our kids or anything, right? There, there could be anything. Some have used the resources that God has given them to fund ministry, and that's really who Theophilus is. So Luke is our author. Theophilus kind of was the person he's writing to, but really for the sake of all of us. So let's start there again, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, we're talking about the Gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day, verse 2, when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's just really important about the book of Acts, or the formal name is the Acts of the Apostles, right? But it starts with, I already wrote you about what Jesus began to do and teach. You see, the work of the apostles here in the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, or the commissioning of the church, what the church does and is called to do, is a continuation of what Jesus began to do and teach, right? It is our job to continue the mission, to take the teachings of Jesus and be able to repeat them and teach them and use them for others and to do the things that Jesus began and to continue them here in our community. So we get to pick up or kind of take the, the handoff, right, and, 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 and move the ball down the field. We get, to, we get to take it to the next step, whether our next step is our generation, whether our next step is planting a church in a new community, things that we have done. Right? That's the, and that's really why we're, our name is Generations, is we see ourselves as a link in the chain. Right? That before us was a World War II generation church who really funded what we have as Generations. That we stand on their shoulders. Not only did they, they fund it, but they also, they are the ones that shared the gospel with some of the folks in this room. Right? That provided a church for when we were at Park Church in Long Beach, that that generation of people, they did their job in their era, and then they really passed the baton to us. Now we take that, and we run our leg of the race, right? And so we're just a link in the chain. We're a generation that stands on the shoulders of those before us, and our job is to reach the next generation. And that's really what our name, where our name came from. And so we're just to take the baton like a relay race and just to run our part. And so Jesus is going to very clearly commission the church and, and explain to them what their leg of the race is, what their part in this is. And it's simply to pick up where Jesus left off and take it to the next generation, right? To the next city, to the next person, to the next family member, to the next community, to the next generation. That's what they're to do. And so we continue the work and teachings of Jesus. Verse 3, it says, Jesus, he presented himself alive to them, 
after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus, physically alive, is appearing to the disciples to prove that he is physically alive, right? Now, that sounds crazy, except he died, was buried for three days, and resurrected from the grave, right? As he had promised he would do, he would die and return in three days. Now, anybody can say that, and everybody can die, but to come back from the dead validates who Jesus is, that he is God as he proclaimed to be, that he is Messiah and Savior, that he is Lord, and that he has accomplished what it means for you and I to be in relationship with God, that he has done the work, that he lived the life that you and I are called to live, but we choose not to, that he died death in our place, as a substitute for us, that he was buried in a grave to forgive our sins, but rose from the grave to give us new life, right? We're not just forgiven, we're made new, right? That's a big deal to the gospel. We're not just forgiven versions of our broken self, but we are transformed versions, new versions of who God has created us to be. It's not overnight, it takes time, it takes work, it takes energy, it takes effort. It takes learning how to surrender to the gospel but that's who we are. We're new creations in Christ. And so Jesus begins to provide this proof. He shows them he's alive. He died and is alive. They saw him die. They know that. Then they see him raised from the dead. And so you can imagine they have questions, right? You see someone die. You've been following them for three years, like Peter and John and Andrew and Matthew and all of them have been doing. He proclaimed he would die and come back. But do we understand that or believe that? Or, or what do we do with that? They see him die, and most of them are incredibly disappointed. A lot of them go back to their own lives because their expectations were not met by him. And so they kind of start to go their own way. But then Jesus resurrects from the grave and begins to appear to them and show them, show himself to them. And you can imagine, you see Jesus now, you have questions. You're not thinking, oh, cool, he's just alive again because we don't have a category for that. That had not ever happened. And so Jesus, even though he said he would do it, you've got to put yourself in their shoes and understand this is mind-blowing. This is category changing. This, this is reshaping of everything they know. So Jesus spends 40 days appearing to them and showing himself to them. I know to, to, to Thomas at one point, he says, touch the holes in my hands. He's crucified to a cross. He says, touch the holes, the scars. See that it's me. He eats with them. He dines with them. He hangs out with them, showing he's alive. So what you will see in the book of Acts is that the primary emphasis in the gospel is not the modern day gospel like forgiveness heaven. It's that Jesus is alive. They saw him die. Some that will come to faith actually shouted for his death. Others may have possibly helped crucify him, but now he's alive. That's the emphasis of the gospel in the book of Acts. It's the emphasis of the gospel in the New Testament. It should be the emphasis in our gospel that we serve and follow and are saved by a living King Jesus who lived and died and rose again, lives forever, right? And so he is proving this. He's showing this to them. He's making this the key theme of the gospel for them, that he is alive. 
And so he spends his time with this. Verse 3, let's do that again. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, so after the crucifixion, the beating before that. He says, by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So not only will Acts emphasize that Jesus is alive, but it will take the teachings of Jesus and it will emphasize them now to a new group of people, a new, a new group of hearers, if you will. And the, the teaching of Jesus, it begins with Jesus' first message and ends with, we see here, that he is teaching about the kingdom of God. Now, in simple terms, we'll talk about this more, but in simple terms, there's the kingdom of this world, the thing that is broken by sin, that is, that is run by evil, and it doesn't have to be ultimate evil like, you know, like Nazi Germany or Hitler or something like that. It doesn't have to be ultimate evil, but let's just admit we're run by evil people, right? That there's evil in the world, that suffering and brokenness is a part of our day-to-day -day lives. Often we contribute to it, sometimes others, right? But we live in this broken world. That's, that's the world. That's the kingdom of the world. But then there's God's kingdom. There's not only God and his reign, but there's also the kingdom as he made, so the world as he created it to be. So when God created the world, it didn't have sin. It didn't have pain. It didn't have death. Human sin is what broke the world. And so the kingdom of God is the reality of how we are meant to be. What Jesus lived and died and rose again to accomplish for us. So if you're in Christ, though your feet may be planted here, you are in the kingdom of God. You're in the kingdom with Jesus as a living king, and you are his hopefully loyal subject. I am his hopefully loyal subject. And what we have is like these two kind of circles that begin to overlap, but it'd probably be better this way, right? They begin to overlap where the kingdom of God is starting to take over here again through each one of us, right? That we, we can't put everything back in the box, right? We can't get it all back to where it was. We can't do that at all. But Jesus is redeeming. He's taking us back to the world that God created for us. And he's doing it one person at a time through us. And so as he redeems and changes and transforms and saves us, we begin to live on this planet, though a part of his kingdom, <clears throat> in this world, right? We get to be Christ to our community, right? Jesus to our neighbors, to our family members, to the people that we go to school with or work with or whatever it might be. We get to show them Jesus. Now, we're not perfectly that, but as we are obedient to Christ, we get to see people get to see Christ in us. So this kingdom theme, Jesus is calling us to understand we're not to live here, we're to live there right now, right? Not in the future, right now, that we're a part of a new kingdom. So here's the problem. We tend to live for today, right? We tend to work for today and play for today. We tend to emphasize today or what we can see and feel and touch, but Jesus says, this is dying, this is eternal. I've taken you from what's broken, I've put you in what is righteous and just and holy and true. To live in this kingdom means to live a different way. Not to live a different way to earn anything because salvation is free. That grace is unmerited or undeserved, but once we receive that, that we are to live in a new way. So the kingdom should shape our lives. Understanding whose we are, not just who we are, but whose we are, should change how we live. If we follow this king of this world, we live this way. 
we follow the king and his kingdom, we should live a new way. Right? And that's what the gospel does. It begins to transform us, change who we are, and change what we value, and set our eyes on a new thing. In fact, we talk about the word repent in English a lot, about turning and running, but in Greek, the word actually means, metanoia, it's to, to have a new way of thinking, right? To see yourself through a new lens or to see life through a new lens, through the lens of God, right? To have a change of mind would be another way to say that. So the kingdom should reshape our lives. So it's a main theme in Acts. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he, meaning Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Holy Spirit we'll talk about in just a minute. But there's a command to wait here. So here's what Jesus is doing. He spent 40 days teaching them, instructing them, emphasizing the kingdom, calling them to something new. And then he said, listen, I have a job for you, but you can't accomplish it until I enable you to, till I empower you to, till I equip you with my spirit to do it. So he says, listen, I'm going to leave. In the Gospels, he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to send you another helper. He was a helper, now another helper, meaning the Holy Spirit. Right? But now he says, I need you to wait here. So wait here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Right? That's what he's calling them to do. Wait for a minute. What he's teaching them here is, you can't accomplish what I've called you to in your own strength. Amen. Right? You're not good enough, talented enough, rich enough, pretty enough, whatever it might be. You're not enough. Right? Wait. You got to wait when I empower you then. Right? Then you can accomplish what I've called you to. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I want to explain there's two ways of viewing this verse. Sometimes we see this verse and we see the disciples asking Jesus, like, okay, is it now where we expel Rome because they're under Roman authority? They're kind of like second-class citizens, right? They're, they're not the, the empire, the nation they once were, physically, humanly, right? And, and when we look through that lens, it's almost like they don't understand what Jesus has been telling them for the last 40 days. So it may not be true. And his answer doesn't really fit that. But that's how we often treat it. Like, okay, is now, is now when our, our human desires are, start to kick in? Well, there's another way to view this question. See, God had said all along when Israel ignores God and goes their own way, that he would lift his blessing off of them. When they repented, he would give it back to them. We saw that like in the book of Ruth, right, that we just finished. As they are wandering away from God, or in Naomi's case, leaving and going to Moab, right, God's hand of blessing comes off of them, and things happen, and, and they're not good, and, and it caused them to turn and return back first to Bethlehem and then to God himself, right? And then as they begin to return to God, God begins to bless them again. So there's this, when you walk away, I want to get your attention, God says, and when you return, I want to shower that love and grace on you, right? Well, Israel as a nation, as a people, had been disobedient for the last thousand years, right? And at one point, God, they split into two nations, and God conquers one nation with another, with another kingdom, and then destroys the final nation, the final remaining Jerusalem with another one in Babylon, right? And God all along has been calling them to repent and return, to stop living like the world and start living like his people. 
And during that time, he made promises that said, listen, if you return, I will fulfill my calling in you. Let me give you two verses that kind of show you what this means. So I'm going to show you Isaiah 49 first. So God says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up tribes of Jacob, meaning Israel, and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So in the middle of them failing and being exiled to get their attention, God says this, it is not too big for me if you return to me to bring you back and make you a light to the nation. See, Israel all along had really two jobs. One was that God was going to bring Jesus through that nation, right? Through that, we would get a savior, Jesus. The other was that they were to be a light to the world that would shine for God, that they were to show God to the world around them. But instead, what they did was they lived like the world around them, and there was no discernible difference in them from the world they lived in. So as they went further and further away from God, more and more like the world they lived in, God just lifted his blessing. He called them return. He gave them opportunities. He loved them. He sent them messengers. He did all that. But when they continued to disobey God, he had them conquered by other nations. So the question they could be asking, is it at this time that you restore the kingdom, right? Is it at this time where you restore the calling on your people to be a light to the nations? Ezekiel 36 adds this in the same idea. It says, and I will give you a new heart. And I will give you a new spirit I will put within you, excuse me, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says, when you return, I'll give you a new heart for me, I'll cleanse you of what you were, I will put my spirit in you, then you can be a light to the nations. You with me? So they're asking this question, and we often treat it like they're asking an end times question, but they're really not. They're asking about a prophetic promise from God to again use humanity to reveal him to the world. So let's reread that. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So if they're asking, like, are we going to kick Rome out right now? Then his answer is, it's really not for you to know the human kind of timelines, only God. But if they're asking, is it now that you're going to start using a human people, a group of people here on earth to reveal you to the world? His answer is, you may not understand all the times and the seasons, but when my spirit comes upon you, then you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, kind of their cousins, and to the ends of the earth. You with me? The answer is yes. I want to use people. I want to use you. But you need my spirit. Like Ezekiel, the prophet promised while you were in Babylon 700 years earlier. When I pour out my spirit on you, I will cause you to obey. I will clean you up. I will put my spirit, God's spirit, the Holy Spirit in you. That you can be a light to the nations, as Isaiah said about 100 years earlier. So here's the church. We're looking at Jesus kind of talking to the apostles, disciples. But here's the first century church, the first church. And one of the questions is, 
Is it now you're going to begin using people to reveal you to the rest of the world? And Jesus' answer is yes. When my spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses. Let's read that again, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Another major theme, if not, if not one or of two main themes in the book of Acts is the pouring out of the Spirit on the church. Even look at in this chapter, verse 2, Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Verse 4, the disciples would be baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll be my witnesses, right? Already you can see Luke's intention is that there's something more that the gospel gives to us rather than just coming to faith, but there's, there's a calling, a commissioning, and there's empowering for the job at hand. But right now, you have to wait. Jesus said, wait here, right? Wait until I come until the Spirit comes upon you, excuse me. So we see Jesus model it, we see Jesus promise it, and then we, ex we see Jesus explain why we need it. When the Spirit comes upon you with power, you'll be what? My witnesses, right? You can't represent me to the world in your own strength. You can't explain God to humanity in your own strength. You, you can't explain how the cross somehow equals salvation to a human being. You can't do that in your own strength. You see, the message of the gospel doesn't make sense unless God empowers that message. Right? That it, you can't understand that God became flesh and lived us in this life and then died in our place. Like, how does that do anything for us? And rose from the grave. Well, how does that happen? And then ascended to heaven. He's alive today. Like, what do I do with that? But see, through the Spirit, that message has power. Amen. And the power is to change heart and not us. The, the power, the Spirit changes hearts, awakens the spiritually dead to make them spiritually alive. And God's choice is to use a renewed people. And so Jesus says, wait until my Spirit comes upon you with power, and then you'll be my witnesses. And what they're called to be witnesses of is that he is alive. That's the message, right? That Jesus is alive. He's not some guy who wrote some really good things, had some followers, wrote some stuff, taught some stuff, and then died like every other guy, like Muhammad, like Buddha, like Confucius, like all of them, like Joseph Smith, you name it, they all died. But Jesus is alive. He said, when I come upon you, when the Spirit comes upon you with power, you'll be my witnesses. You're going to be the ones who say, I saw him live. I saw him die. I saw him alive. He's alive today. That's our job. And that's what we're empowered to do in the Spirit. And so we, we miss that. We miss our, our commissioning as a church. We miss the emphasis of the gospel, that we are to be a light to the nations. That's what God said through the prophets in the Old Testament, that when God restores a people, there'll be a light to the nations. They'll be filled with his spirit. They'll be cleansed, and he will cause us to obey. He'll take some of the ornery disobedience out of us and cause us to obey. He will do the hard work, not us. So we are empowered as a church to proclaim or be a witness that Jesus is alive. Another way to say that, the, the Spirit empowers us to share Christ with the rest of the world. And when we say the rest of the world, 
We don't need to go very far. We probably don't need to go past our next door neighbor. Right? We probably don't even have to go through the, you know, past the members of our own family. Right? To be a witness to share Christ with others is, is to just kind of take yourself and embed yourself with a new mindset that we live in a kingdom, not on the earth, that we're a part of this, even though we're here, that this is greater than this, and that this will outlast this, and we want to share this with others. To share the hope and the joy that we have. To share the, the peace that we have when the world is going crazy. I turned on the news. I th- it was on long enough to figure out what time a football game was on tonight, and the news was running while I was looking, right? And it took me that long to hear how election season is now in full swing, and Iowa's coming up, and then New Hampshire's after that, or some crazy thing, and that we'll be voting in this year. And all I could think of is, oh, there goes this year, right? Like, there's saturation of these things and the division of people and just, man, it took me five, I couldn't get to that game fast enough, right? You know, set the DVR so I could leave. Verse 9, it says, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus ascends back to his throne, right? Job complete here. All the work that it takes for us to be reconciled to God, to be sons and daughters of the God who created everything, to forgive our sin and reconcile us to a holy God, all the work has been done. All that remains is a promise to make it right completely one day. But in between this and this, he gives us a task to tell others about him to be a witness to the living Jesus. The living Jesus, if you are in Christ, if you've been changed by Jesus, you know he is alive, not just a guy who wrote some stuff some years ago. That the living Jesus transforms us, that we worship a living king. Verse 10, And while they were gazing the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I just want you to imagine this for a minute. Jesus is here, and we're all sitting together, and he's teaching, and he he gives his final words. Wait here. Till my spirit comes upon you, then you'll be my witnesses. Here, Long Beach, Orange County, and to the rest of the world, right? And then he starts to go. You just see them and just watch. They're stuck, right? I would be too, right? Like that hasn't happened before. That was new. And they're kind of there. God sends what are either men or probably angels is what we think, right? Like, hey, what are you looking for? Just like that, he's coming back, right? He's going to do that thing in reverse when it's time. Right now, you've been given a job right? Let's get your head out of there. I know that was amazing, right? Let's refocus. Let's get back on task. Jesus has given you the next few steps. Wait here, then you're going to be witnesses. You know what you should be doing. Quit tripping, though it was cool, right? Let's get back in the game, right? Jesus' promised return should shape how we live, right? Not a fear of, oh, I don't want to be doing this when he returns. Like, out of mission. Like, I want to see people know Jesus. I've got loved ones that don't know Jesus. And, and there's X amount of time. I don't know if it's a million years or another five seconds. I don't know. But I have a task. 
In the meantime, we as a church, we, we have a task to complete. We have a, a job to do to be that link in the chain. No matter how long the chain runs on, we're to be this link in the chain. That's our job. So we get to the job, right? And that's what they tell them. Good looking. Let's get back to the job, right? We have a task to do. Verse 12. So when they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, so the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. It's less than a half mile is what they're saying. Now, I want to remind you, this is before the Holy Spirit empowers the church to go to the next, to do what Jesus has called them to do. This is before that. So we have a group of believers. We're going to see more about that in a minute. There's 120 of them. It's a group that looks like this. Maybe not looks like. A group about this size, right? There's a group of about 120 people that are followers of Jesus. We'll see that in just a minute. They're believers. They've been transformed by the Spirit to believe. They're in Christ, but not empowered to be witnesses for Christ yet. They're in that in-between, okay? They have the Spirit as far as being a believer, but they've not yet been empowered to do what Jesus called them to do. There's 10 days before his, between his ascension and what we call Pentecost. We'll talk about next Sunday. This 10 days, that's what I want to look at for us as a church today. What do they do in that 10 days before they can go to the next step? How do they spend those 10 days preparing themselves for the mission before them, preparing themselves for the job that Jesus has given them to be his witnesses, to proclaim to the world that Jesus is alive and reigns as king over all. You have 10 days to prepare. What do you do? Well, they have 10 days. Here's what they do. Verse 13. And when they had entered, so they went back to the upper room, right? And when they, oh, I'm sorry, Jerusalem. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room, excuse me, where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, the other James, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, the other Judas, right? All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So three quick things, right? So this is a list of the original 12 disciples minus Judas Iscariot. So the 11 remaining, what he now is calling apostles. Disciple means student. Apostle means a messenger sent. Okay, that's what it means. He's calling them now capital A apostles, like unique messengers, right? That are sent by him. His authority, his message sent by him. That's what he's calling now these apostles. So there's 11 of them. There's women here, which elevates, by the way, women would have never been listed anywhere else. Any other writing, Roman writing, Jewish writing, never would have been written. Jesus elevates women in the church, right? That Jesus treats man and woman, though different, as equal, right? Not the same, different, but equal. Equal in the dignity of God, equal in the value, equal in, in, in being called to a mission of being witnesses to others, Right? Just because we're a complementarian church, meaning that we believe in two genders, that, that they're male and female, and they complement one another. They're not the same. They complement one another. And just because we have male pastors and elders does not mean women are not equal. Right? That they're not endowed with the same dignity and value and image of God inside them. We're just made different, and we're okay with that. That women are beautiful. They smell better than most of you guys. That's for sure. Right? And they help keep us on track. But... There's women there praying with the church involved. The first people Jesus reveals himself to. Women, right? That he is resurrected from the dead. Tells the women, sends the women. That's the first one with the message. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. And they're the first ones given the biggest news of all history. 
They're sent with a message that Jesus is alive. And then it says they're of one accord, right? They're not in a Honda. They're ga- <laughs> oh. It was just sitting there, right? So, all right. So, uh, they're gathered in unity, right? The church is gathered in unity, right? That they're in one accord. They're of the same mind. They understand the job Jesus has called them to. They also understand they don't have yet what Jesus has said you need to do the job. So they're gathered together. I want to read that again, verse 14. So all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. His brothers also join in who didn't follow him until he had resurrected from the dead, right? But here it is. Here's the first thing we see them do, other than gather together. They gather together, and that's incredibly important. We need to hear that today. We don't value the gathering together as much as we should. We don't understand that we're called to be a gathered people, right? That when we're here, we are something unique and special and empowering, and and, and there's a means of grace that takes place when we gather. But then when we gather, what are we to do? And it says they devote themselves to prayer. Not just their quiet time in the morning when they wake up as they're getting coffee and getting ready where they pray a couple things about their day ahead. They gather for devoted times of prayer together. So before reaching out to others, they gather together. They devote themselves to prayer before they, before they go about what they're called to do later. Right? It's like the inner life of the church before the outer life starts. Right, you with me? This is what they do before the Spirit empowers them to go out. They gather and they devote themselves to prayer. You'll hear us quote Jesus oftentimes in the beginning of the service when we talk about my house will be called a house of prayer. It's actually a quote from Isaiah. We'll put this on the screen. And God is talking about outsiders outside of Israel. He says, outsiders I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. One of the biggest problems of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament is they were, not only were they not a witness to others, they didn't even like other people. Right? They didn't want to see outsiders come in. They wanted to keep them out. But 800 years before Jesus is even born, Isaiah is saying, God says outsiders are welcome, and one day my house will be a house of prayer for all people. I'll gather some Jews, but I'm going to gather some other people too, because this will be a house of prayer for all people. Remember when they asked him, are are you now going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to put things back to where they were that people now can represent you well? Jesus' answer is yes. When my spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses. I'll fulfill all these promises in you. My spirit will come down on you. You'll make my house a house of prayer. You'll make it a house of prayer for all people. Look around the room. This is not a homogenous group of people. This is a very diverse group of people in all kinds of ways, not just ethnically, socioeconomically, politically, all kinds of things. But it's a diverse group of people. This is what God was talking about. That we will have enough in common because of Jesus that where you were born or what you look like won't matter so much. And we don't have to target that or make that a theme of our church. We just got to love our neighbor and our church is going to look like this. This is what our neighborhood looks like. We'll be a light to the nations. 
Right? And so Jesus says this. Jesus kind of fulfills this in them. They start to understand what God is calling them to. And they devote themselves to prayer. Just as a side note, put it on your calendars. Fourth Sunday, starting again this month, we're back to Selah. Fourth Sunday night, right? So yeah, that's good. So Marcia's going to be there. That's good. So yeah, right? She, at least she's excited, right? If you're new to the church, Selah's just a night. We, Sunday night, four Sundays every month where we spend about an hour in prayer and worship, right? We just gather together and pray together. Fourth Sunday. You'll hear about it again, but fourth Sunday, 6 p.m., right here. All right. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. I want to pause there. 120 people. First church. That's roughly what's in here right now. The church that we all owe our history to. We got the gospel because they did their job. Look like this. About this size. Let me rephrase that. It was one ethnic group primarily. It was primarily Jews in Jerusalem. But it was about this size. Jesus pastored a church of about 120. This is what he's kind of saying, Right? As he ascended, he has spoke to crowds of thousands, did all kinds of things. But in the end, when Jesus died and then rose from the grave, there's about 120 people that followed him. And as he ascends, we see them gather together. What if we did? What if we lived? What if we valued what Jesus gave us so much? What if we did that to the exclusion of everything else? What if we lived that way? What could God do through us? I mean, we're here because of that group. Like, what could we accomplish for the kingdom? And the answer is, that answer is unending. Because you get 100, 120 people together that are devoted to Jesus above all else, and there's not much you can't do. Empowered by the Spirit, right? Verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in, the, in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, this is a parenthetical note by Luke, by the way, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. There you go, that was fun. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which means field of blood. So Peter stands up in the church and says, brother, scripture had to be fulfilled. God said it would happen, which means it has to happen, right? That one of us would betray Jesus. That was Judas. That Judas goes and betrays Jesus, hands him off to the religious leadership, which ultimately puts him in front of Roman leadership, which leads him to the, to the, to the, the, the beating and then the cross. Right? And he said that that had to happen because Scripture said so. So it had to be fulfilled within us. Right? Jesus had to betray him. Verse 20. Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Here's the second thing the church does. They devote themselves to prayer. They gather. Right? Church, by the way, the word church means gathering. Ecclesia means assembly or gathering. So it's implied, we gather, they devote themselves to prayer, and they start to study scripture together, 
right? And they're studying Scripture together with a, a point of like what needs to move us from where we are to where we need to be, right? Okay, so God fulfilled what he said in Scripture as Judas betrayed us. Now, Peter's going to move on to, so what do we do according to Scripture in light of that? Here's where it goes, verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us, Peter's still speaking, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The church gathers together, devotes themselves to prayer, begins to open scripture together, and all they had was the Old Testament, right? They're probably worshiping because they're in the Psalms. But as they open God's word, they begin to see, okay, God fulfilled what he said here, and now we need to replace him, right? They're looking to scripture with an eye towards what do we need to change or what do we need to do? We can't go do the mission Jesus has called us to because we haven't received the spirit from him yet like that. So what do we do? We prepare ourselves. How do we prepare ourselves? We search scripture to figure out where we're not in line with scripture. And Peter says, so we should take one of the people here to be a 12th witness, right? There's a lot of questions about this. We never hear from this guy again. That's fair, but we never hear, there's only four of them we ever hear again about. So that's not a fair judgment of how effective he was because we never hear the word Bartholomew after that last verse again, right? And so that's not a measure of effectiveness. They just wanted another person to fill that office according to the Psalms, but notice the role that he'll have. He will be a witness to the resurrected Jesus, right? Not he'll be a rock star, apostle, pastor, writer, whatever. He'll be another witness. We will have 12 witnesses. We will have a jury full of people that have seen the living, resurrected, ascended Jesus. Has to be here from the baptism of John forward throughout all three years of ministry. See him die, see him resurrect, and see him ascend. You got to have all those metrics. Let's pick one who can fill that spot. Verse 23, then they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. And to take this place in ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots, it kind of like rolled dice or rock, paper, scissors their way to an answer. It says they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Another debate is, is this supposed to wait on Jesus calling Paul, right? Either way. Here's what they're doing, right or wrong. Here's what they're doing, effective or not. Here's what they're doing, whether they're completely in line with, with Jesus or not. Here's what they're doing. They're gathered together, they're praying, they're seeking scripture, and they're obeying Jesus, right? Let's not miss the obedience factor. Jesus said, wait here, don't do it on your own. They're obeying. Let me just... Let me just say this. We often confuse obedience with the mission that we're called to. You see, the starting point is that we should be obedient, right? When the Holy Spirit awakens us, regenerates us, causes us to believe, we should become obedient, right? We should then move and get baptized as we're called to. We should repent of sin. We should gather as a church. We should pray. We should study scripture. We should love one another, serve one another, gather with all those things, right? So step one is obedience, Jesus says, now that you've been obedient, and I've got a, a group of you, the next phase will be join the mission, right? You see, the, the end all or be all or change in us isn't just that we would be obedient. 
That's just the starting point. Not only should we be obedient to Jesus, but once we have understood what Jesus is calling us to, we should also do what Jesus is calling us to. We should join the mission of sharing him with others, right? Our obedience to Jesus just shows others that we actually believe what we're saying, that we truly believe that he is a living king, that he is sovereign savior over all, that he is Lord and God today. These both our savior who rescued us from sin and our Lord who leads us today. We believe that and you can see that in our obedience to him. But then we join the mission to share Jesus with others. So I want to look at those three things that the first church did in those 10 days as they waited to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and, and as they waited to be that messenger to the rest of the world. So here they are. They first obeyed Jesus by gathering together regularly, devoting themselves to prayer and studying scripture to see what they needed to change. All of this for one purpose, so that they could be prepared to carry the message of a living Jesus to other people. So what application will you make? What did you hear today that you want to apply to your lives this week? Let me give you some suggestions. For me, I want to live more on mission for the gospel. To prepare for that, I want to spend more time gathered with you, my church, in prayer, preparing for those opportunities that God will give me to share the gospel with others. That's my takeaway today is I want to gather and pray with you more and intentionally so that I will be equipped for the mission God has given me. Mature believers, if you've been walking with Jesus and growing in your faith for a long time, I want, uh, uh, your job is to help prepare the church with the word and prayer so the church can be equipped as witnesses for a living Jesus, right? To teach, help teach the people around you to be equipped when that gospel conversation comes up right? Your job is to equip them with the word and with prayer. You should lead by example and teach that to others. If you're new to faith, your job is to prepare yourself to be a witness for Jesus to the world around you by gathering regularly, praying and studying scripture with the church that you're a part of, right? You build yourself up in that way. If you're here and not yet a follower of Jesus, the gospel message is one that is much greater than heaven or hell or forgiveness and happiness. It's about the death and resurrection of God become flesh in Jesus. It's about a living king and savior today that we are called to follow. Kids and parents. Parents, your job is to teach your kids not only the true gospel, but the value of gathering together to pray and study scripture with the church so that we are all prepared for the mission in front of us together. Whether that means here, while we're doing our takeaways, Wednesday nights as we're learning and growing in discipleship around the family, Sunday school classes where we've got a kids class over here, a gospel class, a Christian beliefs class, a financial peace class, all those different offerings at 8.30 to 9.30 Sunday. But are you taking those things and are you giving them to your kids intentionally that they might understand the role of the church in their lives? All right, let's take two, three, four minutes. Turn to just a couple people around you, not too big of a group, so you all have time. And what is your takeaway today? What is something you heard you want to apply to your life this week? Please look around. Don't leave anybody out. Sir. Sir.